Hello, and welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Annika Rice. Annika's known and loved for her energetic stints presenting TV shows Treasure Hunt and Challenge Annika in the 80s and 90s. She's been a regular on our screens ever since, as well as hosting a hit show on BBC Radio 2. Annika's an avid painter, having studied at the Royal College of Art. In 2019, she sashayed her way through the 17th series of Strictly Come Dancing, and in 2021, she rolled up her sleeves in the Bake Off tent. Annika lives in London and has three grown-up sons. Annika Rice, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. Thank you, Jason. It's lovely to see you. Can I start, Annika, today by asking if you could tell us about a significant bereavement you've experienced in your life? I've had a number of bereavements. Um, I've also done grief forums for Marie Curie, where I've talked to a lot of people who've been bereaved. And I think the most significant bereavement uh, that, that caught me up short and from which uh, it, it sort of just highlights a period of my life I've never really moved on from was actually in my early 30s, where my very best friend died very tragically and it, it, it was around the whole time of my marriage breaking up and, and a lot of things happening and honestly I've never really moved on from that period of my life but I've just learned to uh, live with it really it's just a, a inherent sadness that I feel the whole time um, and I know that probably sounds absolutely ridiculous but it is just the way I am and um, as I say I've just absorbed it into my armour of life and I just move on with it. It's sitting with me the whole time. Well, firstly, it doesn't sound ridiculous. And I wondered whether, can, can you tell us about what happened to your friend? We both had little children exactly the same age because we did everything together. So we both had sort of two children under the age of three. And she just went in for a routine operation, which went wrong and never came out of that hospital. Um, and... It was utterly devastating to me because, uh, uh, you know, I suppose I'd known her since I was about six. So she represented all my hinterland and I had a sort of troubled childhood. So her knowledge of me and, and where I came from was really important, really important to me. And when I lost that, I, I felt absolutely rudderless, I have to say. Um, and I think grief's a really important thing, isn't it? Because you you talk to people about grief and it leaves this terrible, terrible void. And some people fill that void, other people learn to fill the void. You know, there's just coping mechanisms of moving on. If, it, if it's a partner they've lost, they might meet another partner or gradually through time, things sort of change. And, and there's no doubt that as the decades have gone on, that terrible sadness, um, as I say, is just something that's sort of layered onto my skin. But it is just there. 
um it's just there so i i'm always you know i'm always terribly um i feel great empathy for people who uh are sort of saddled with something they really would like to shift but they just can't because i totally get it mm. what do you think the shift would be well i've i for me the way I deal with not coping with something very well, and even as I'm speaking about it, I'm thinking this just sounds ridiculous. You know, I was in the early 30s. I'm now early 60s. Surely you, you cope with it. But the way I deal with it, and as I say, it's, it's something that triggers the whole time that feeling of sadness. So I have to cope with it. And it's a, it's a quote from Winnie the Pooh, Jason, that I hold very close to my heart, which was Piglet was so excited at the idea of being useful that he forgot to be frightened anymore. I love that quote. I loved it when I was an eight-year-old. I love it now. I've loved it all the, the years in between. And I would say that that is my way of um, sort of, you know, moving through life. I just... I like to be doing things. I, I think it's really important for us as humans to feel that we're part of something much bigger than ourselves because it makes us look outwards. Um, easier said than done if you're feeling very anxious and bleak, as a lot of your listeners will be. But it really does help um, just that throwing yourself into something else, which is back to filling the void, I guess, isn't it? And that's helped you. Definitely helped me. It's sort of like a circuit breaker. Otherwise, all those fears and that sadness sort of goes round and round and round, even though it's totally, it's not logical that I feel those things. And it's ridiculous, considering what uh, the hardships most people go through. But it's just for me, that's what I carry around with me. But I find, um, I, I just, I call it my circuit breaker. I, I just, if I'm in that sort of cycle, I just go and paint or I go and um, I, I'm a befriender. I look after um, elderly ladies in, in my local community. I'll I'll just reach out to other people. I'll just get on and do something. Or you know, in the old days of Challenge Annika, I'd build a community centre. <laughs> I just you know I love being with that great army of volunteers. You know that's sort of you know my happy place if you like. And I think your friends, Jeff. You know, it's so sudden and traumatic and and profound and life-changing clearly um you know from what you've described and I think that's that's totally understandable I, I, I'm just thinking about depending on our relationship with the person who's died and depending on how they've died that's gonna completely inform our experience of grief and how we grieve whoever we've lost so um you know we, we we won't we probably won't always have the same experience of grief twice with somebody else in our life who's died like a parent or a sibling or another friend neighbor um because it, it's it's kind of based around our relationship with that individual and as you describe how key she was certainly with your if i'm correct in what i've kind of heard your identity and sense of self and knowing a bit about your past and your younger life um so it's kind of multifaceted that experience isn't it that sudden shocking traumatic death yeah it it, it was traumatic and as i say it was um for for all the reasons you've described of, of her being a sort of uh, bearing witness to my life up until that moment she just knew me 
you know, backwards. Um, uh, and then the other problems I was having around that same time, it sort of just become a sort of big, big pivotal point of my life from which I definitely changed at that point, you know, and uh, moved forward in my life feeling quite different. I know when I'd read a bit about your experience with grief, and I know you've been an incredible supporter of Marie Curie, um, you talked about your parents and your father in particular, um, and his views on, on death. Can you share some of those? Well, my father, um, I, we're quite an eccentric family, and my father um, was always very sort of funny about it, which it, I always think is a you know, great way if you can be. Um, this was when he was much older, obviously, uh, and he was facing death, and he wasn't well, he had Alzheimer's, but he used to say, honestly, he used to call me Dulux because we just looked at paint swatches all day endlessly because that was the way I could communicate with him we'd look at I'd go that blue's a nice color for your tie dad and what do you think about that pink for you know and he'd and then one day I said to him what do you think my name is dad and he just went Dulux so anyway he said to me Dulux I honestly wouldn't mind going next Tuesday <laughs> and I just I sort of know what he means because I've, I've been around lots of people who've died now and uh I think if you die in, in later age um and perhaps there is a moment where you just sort of uh, feel exhausted by the whole act of living, possibly. Um, certainly, I felt that with both my parents, um, who I, I watched die, um, didn't feel a, an unhappy thing at that point. Um, but then, as I say, having um, dis discussed grief a lot and hosted, you know, these Marie Curie forums on grief, I think having spoken to experts like you and counsellors, it's a really profoundly extraordinary thing, that um, relationship you have with someone who's dying, especially if you're someone like yourself going into hospices, trying to help people. And it just does, you know, most of the cases that I heard, you know, just actually sounded quite beautiful, to be honest, really quite beautiful. Um, and I don't know, I'm very interested as well as how faith comes into all that. Because I think um, certainly the experts on the last sort of panel I was involved with were saying that believers who felt that they were going on to a different life, into, onto something else, were more accepting than those non-believers, which stuffs me up a bit as I'm a non-believer. But anyway, I've got time to take up a quick bit of religion. <laughs> I think faith is an interesting one, in, in, certainly in hospice care and in palliative care, we would, um, we'd, we'd be more likely to talk about spirituality. And um, of course, faith and religion can be a key part of spirituality for some people. But essentially, it's about looking at what gives somebody's life meaning. Yes, yes. So whether that's painting or music, or a religion or a faith. Um, I think that, that would certainly be the starting point on meeting somebody is finding out what gives their life meaning and what's, what's supporting them now and what's going to support them in the future. Um, and so you were saying you're a non-believer. So thinking about spirituality and meaning, what do you find helpful in those times of grief and loss? 
Well, I, um, I find huge joy in creativity. You know, I paint and I write. I love walking and running and just being out in the fresh air. Uh, you know, again, I was so lucky to have a career where I just bounded around endlessly outside. Um, uh, and I just love that. It gives me, it gives me a hit of absolute joy. Um, so I would totally get what you're saying about spirituality. You know, I, I, I totally, I live by the sea, so I almost kind of, I'm linked to the tides, I'm linked to the sunsets and the sunrise and uh, nature, just, you know, the rhythm of nature, which I find very profound personally. Um, so I suppose that would be my religion. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I'm a huge fan of the sea as well and just kind of water yeah rivers um and i think that, that's kind of that's exactly the kind of conversation you know we, we would be having with somebody who was either dying or um you know living with a terminal illness to get a sense of what gives them meaning um you know so we can support them to kind of seek those things out um to to, to help them along the way as it were I just wanted to, um, you mentioned earlier about conversations about death. So um, when, your, when your dad said, I wouldn't mind going next Tuesday, but just sort of before that, throughout your life, has, have you been quite open about talking about death and dying? What messages when you were younger did you get about death and dying? Was it something that was kind of hidden? Yeah, I don't think anyone discussed death and dying when I was younger. Um, I'm, I, maybe it's a different generational thing, but I'm much more open with my sons. I mean, I think they've got very good instructions on what, what to do with me because <laughs> um, they know I'm so obsessed with, we call it in our house, we, I suppose our religion is the glory of the evening light, that's what we call it, and, it's, and it stems from, as little children, we, we uh, always live in a house where the sun sets on the water, and uh, there's, a, there's a sofa that when my boys were little, we'd just lie on this sofa and be bathed in this evening light and it was just the glory of the evening light and I'm absolutely you know I'm I'm very strict about the celebration of that glory of the evening light I won't do anything while that amazing transformation is happening from you know the, the day ending and and the evening started it's a really significant time for me and so um I'm sure if there's any kind of plaque that my kids put up anywhere it will just say the glory of the bloody evening light because it's just such a family thing and you know we often we have a whatsapp group we you know we get in touch and and share photos of their glory of the evening light where they are and it's just our our thing so that that's almost our religion I guess so yes I, they know that uh whatever happens to me when I die um the glory of the evening light will be involved in some way I love that kind of WhatsApp group as well, just sort of sharing, you know, everybody's different experiences of the glory of the evening light. I know you can join it if you like. You could be a guest <laughs> member for a couple of weeks. We'll give you a go, Jason, see, see what you can bring up to the party. But it is a lovely way to connect, you know, because we all are all over the place the whole time through work and whatever. And it's just a lovely, it's a, just a, a different way of connecting, isn't it, to share, you know how that early evening is for you. So it sounds like you've had some open conversations with your sons about 
not necessarily your own death, but um, but but that you know, death and dying is something that can be spoken about in the family. Yes, I mean we we were very lucky because um, there's an undertaker's on the corner of our house. So when both my parents died, I got that we brought their bodies up to London, though they weren't in London, and um, we had them at the local undertakers, literally a two minute walk away, chose to have a sort of co a cardboard coffin so that um, nieces, nephews, everyone could pile into the undertakers with felt tips and glue. And we made the most amazing, oh, we did those coffins so beautifully. I, almost the best artwork I've ever done. We just emblazoned with granddad's the greatest down the side. And, and when the coffin moved through uh, our village, you know, to go to the uh, crematorium, which is also conveniently local, people were just clapping on the pavement. And it was just so joyful. And um, we even had a picnic. I don't think we were meant to, but we just took a bit, bit of a picnic in and sat with a coffin. This was with my dad. Um, doing a bit of craning, a bit of chatting. And again, it was just a nice transition. It was like that glory of the evening, like transition. I like, I like a transition. It was a transition from uh, feeling terribly sad and, you know, all those um, feelings you might have into a feeling of celebration. And being there with the coffin was, was a, just such a great transition for it. So by the time we got to the crematorium, we were just pumped up with the joy of granddad being the greatest. And, you know, it was fine. I love that. And just also kind of everybody being involved. Yeah. I got that real sort of community sense when, you know, you were talking about people standing at the side of the road and clapping because, of course, seeing these incredibly colourful, wonderful coffins. And, and it wasn't actually that long ago when death was a community business. You know, it's kind of somebody local would make the coffin and, um, you know, others would be involved and people would help out with whether it was bits of food or... Um, but but everybody, everybody had a role and, and it was talked about more. And then it sort of shifted, I think, and people talk about the medicalised of death um and also we're all so atomized um you know we just lead our little lives don't we and we're not all you know I just love community doing the challenge program has taught me that you know and that that's how now I like to live life I like to, as I said I like to feel part of something much bigger than myself our local community association is called FISH and it stands for friendship independence support and help and it collects all the elderly in the area a huge area as well because this is I'm talking about London and um, those old people are so supported and loved by this massive team of volunteers and befrienders and you know especially during Covid it was it was the most sort of touching thing I've seen how the lengths people would go to to try and keep that contact going and there was a desperately sad situation with one of the elderly ladies I'm in touch with whose whole life centres around her budgie. I mean, this is why I think grief, you know, takes so many different forms. Uh, this budgie was her life. It was the reason she got up in the morning, the person she spoke to and played music to. And um, during COVID, the budgie came ill and she was desperate and no one at that time could get round to, to support her as we would have liked to. And the budgie died. And I've honestly... I've, I've never, ever, um, uh, you know, for a long time experienced such grief, someone absolutely broken by this little bird. And, she, and uh, it, was, it was 
desperate because it was during COVID. Um, but all these amazing volunteers just supported her, sent so much love. We all just tried to do little things we did. I painted a watercolour of her budgie and just dropped it round. Oh, how nice. Other people baked, other people, you know, just it was, it was really amazing to see. The coronavirus pandemic has triggered a wave of bereavement across the country and taken away our ability to be with loved ones and grieve in traditional ways. Marie Curie's new Memory Cloud is an online space to reflect on a loved one's life and share special memories with your friends and family. Visit memorycloud.org.uk. On the subject of that gang through FISH, this fantastic organisation, I once had um, three of my favourite elderly ladies round for lunch, which was quite a performance, just getting them all into the house with various walking aids, and steps, and, you know, it was, it was an adventure. Anyway, they all came around for lunch and I made them a pie. And then after lunch, I got them talking about their funerals. They're all in their late nineties. And um, I put my speaker in the middle of the table, which, you know, is quite a modern thing. If you're 97, you haven't seen one of those before. And I just said to the first one, you know, um, Stefania, what, what would you like played at your funeral? You know, and that, they all loved opera. So it was an aria of some kind. And I put the, the music on and this music just filled the kitchen. And, oh my goodness, they could not believe this sound came out of this little black box. And it was the most touching hour and a half I've had, I think, for a long time, because one by one, they just talked about their funerals and their music and why that music was important to them. And it was beautiful. It was slightly um, broken by my son coming home from wherever he'd come home from, who's very good looking, I have to say. And, um, and again, oh, he's easy on the eye, at which point the whole thing collapsed but up to that point. But then Sam was great because he plays the piano. So he then went and played the piano for them. And it just became this lovely, open discussion about funerals yeah. and death in a way. And uh, that, I suppose that was sort of my way of uh, um, broaching the subject because it is a subject that's sort of good to talk about, isn't it? Absolutely. But I think, I mean, that's a really beautiful story and it sounds absolutely lovely. And um, I, I'm just kind of thinking the way the way my head works, I, I'll be I'll be thinking, well, had they documented that? Had they written it down? You know, did people know what their wishes were? But actually, that's not the point of it. The point was, as you said, it's about it's about opening up a conversation about it, isn't it? It's about yes. opening a conversation about death, funeral wishes life reflection what do you think the women got out of that Annika do you know I think it was a, a moment of real touching sisterhood actually um you know I'm not the same age as them um they don't particularly know each other that well that they're, they're part of the same charity you know the organization that helps them but they didn't they're not intimate with each other it was a moment of of real bonding for the four of us to talk about um, something so profound. And I think it was very happy and, it, and really nice to um, discuss a bit of Wagner and, and explain why it's so important. One of the ladies was Italian. One had been a, a prisoner of war in Poland. All sorts of life stories came out of it. It was like sort of desert island discs 
with funerals. In fact, can I please patent that as an idea for as an offshoot for Marie Curie? <laughs> because it is a lovely way to talk about uh, death, which is so much about life, isn't it? You know, it's all it's all entwined, really. And I think when you're in your late 90s, it feels near, but not frightening for these three ladies anyway. I think beginning the conversation can be really difficult. And I think kind of regardless of what age someone's at, but if somebody's living with a terminal illness um, and, and, and there's family or friends or neighbours, anybody who's significant around them, um, having those conversations can be, can be really tough and, and even just starting them off. And I think actually funeral songs or music can be a great opener. Well, I have to caveat that with the fact that, you know, I was discussing this with one lady who was 97, one was 100, and, you know, it's a very different conversation from the most poignant conversations you'll be having with younger people with terminal illnesses. And that is, uh, you know, I, I don't at all pretend, I'm, I'm talking about it rather glibly and I, I don't want it to come across like that because, you know, my involvement was just with these three ladies and it, and it sort of worked for them at that time. But the, the, the work you guys do is, you know, on, a, on another level. Can I just go back to, um, I've still got the image of your, your dad's um, painted coffin um in the car on the way to the crematorium and i just wondered what happened with his ashes if anything now the ashes are um a, a bone of contention because dad is on the mantelpiece at the moment and my mum is under the snooker table and i've done nothing with them <laughs> i've been waiting to plant a tree um i got it all planned that i'm going to make a little bit of remembrance garden but we're in the process of moving home and I just want to make sure I've got the right bit of garden. You know, there's going to be a sort of longevity to the whole thing. Um, so, you know, I'm very aware that um, I haven't done the right thing with their ashes. We did a bit with my dad. Um, my sister and I, we, we divvied some of them up and we went with all the kids and nieces and nephews on top of a, we found this tour on the top of Dartmoor where my dad used to go horse riding. And we found a tour called Laughter Tour. And because he was just such a laugh and so eccentric, we thought this has got to be the place. And of course, we tossed all these ashes into the air. There was a huge wild wind and they just sort of clung to our anoraks and our hair and Again, it was sort of funny. And dad would have honestly found that amusing. A slight lack of reverence. But again, you know, you're talking about someone who's died at a very, you know, my dad was in his 90s. So there's, there's just not that element of absolute pain surrounding the whole thing. So it did go into slightly Monty Python, frankly. Um, and I've said to my sons that when I die, I want them to uh, divide my ashes up into paint pots and then paint a picture, mixing the ashes with the paint or any old thing. Um, and that, that would be a nice thing. I've always thought that'd be a nice thing to do is to paint uh, a painting for someone using the person's ashes, give that to their family. Did your parents leave instructions on what they wanted after their death? No, not at all. No, not at all. A different generation, as I say, they didn't, apart from my father, so, you know, in old age discussing it a bit in a in a you know wouldn't mind going next Tuesday kind of way it was none of that openness that hopefully we all have now mm -hmm. so you said you've you've spoken to your sons about some of your wishes um and 
my next question is have you done anything a bit more practical about that so have you have you documented anything yourself or have you written a will or written your wishes down or an advanced care plan no i haven't it's the absolute embarrassing answer to that i've got a, a will that's so out of date as to be embarrassing but at least it it names my children in it um but i think that's something i should look forward to doing uh, because you know it is a really lovely thing to receive something from someone who's died that's significant um I, I, i've lost honestly a lot of friends and um paul there was a, a, a man called paul whittam who was a great great friend of mine lived in norfolk and he was a hotelier and in his will, because he knows that basically I like being in bed. I just love my bed. <laughs> it's very significant place for me. It's where I feel most safe. And, uh, you know, I go to bed as early as I possibly can without it sort of practically being in the middle of the morning. And so in his will, he left me bedding for not only my bed, but every bed in the house with duvets, pillows, beautiful you know beautiful white crisp duvet covers and sheets and pillowcases and there's not a day goes by when I don't think of Paul just think of him he's the you know and he's just a lovely man I'm very close with him and his wife Jeanne I'm a godmother to his, one of his daughters um isn't that a lovely idea it's so nice you know something really practical it just made my heart burst when I when this delivery this lorry sort of arrived with all this bedding all in huge cardboard boxes and and as I say every day I think of him so that's a very lovely example of something very special to do isn't it it's a really lovely thing and I think that kind of as well as um you know leaving a gift but but just all also I think if, if we don't write things down the risk is you know, we might think, oh, well, you know, I've told my sons what I want or I've told such and such exactly what I want. Can't really guarantee they're going to remember it all. And so I think it can be incredibly helpful, you know, as well as leaving gifts, if you have gifts to leave, it can also be incredibly, just on a practical level, very helpful for those who are grieving after somebody's died um, to, to know what, what the wishes were. Um, and, and, and in that decision-making process, because there's lots of decisions you have to make when someone's died as well. Yes, no, it is it's a very good point. And I think the, the point that I'm thinking, listening to this is at what point, you know, when you're in your 30s, you think you're far too young. When you're in your 40s, you think you're far too young. You go through each decade thinking you're far too young. And it just has to get a a point where you think come on get on with it rice just do it but it is a thank you for this jason that's my homework i'm going to uh, devise some kind of treasure hunt i think is the word <laughs> <laughs> not going to make it easy i think there might be clues involved <laughs> that's great but i think for you and for and for people listening it's um you know absolutely I, I, I totally get that kind of if you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s it's like oh, why would I want to be thinking about that but it is incredibly helpful and it, it is something practical and actually you could do it in an afternoon or a couple of hours yeah. and then it's done and then you don't have to think about it again 
you don't have to go to a solicitor. You can just write it on, the, on your computer, write it in longhand, and then sort of just lodge it with, with someone legal. But, you know, you don't have to. There's something sort of weirdly litigious surrounding it, isn't there? But there the needn't be. Yeah. It can just be a letter of love and intent. Yeah, or a treasure hunt. Oh, treasure hunt. I think you're warming to that theme. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got a couple of formats out of this chat, Jason. <laughs> um, can I... Just for, for, for our listeners, um, you know, we know people will often find comfort in listening to the podcast, find it supportive hearing other people's experiences of grief and bereavement. And you've mentioned a, a couple of things, Annika, about what has helped you in times of grief. But can you talk a bit more about your experience of, of bereavement and, and the things that have most helped you? Well, I think... At- at times, I mean, I'm going back to my 30s again, because this is just the sort of pivotal time, because I've had, uh, you know, we all have lots of setbacks in life, but I, because that's the period of time I've never really moved on from. Um, and my experience was of being a sort of, I just remember pacing up and down and pacing up and down for, for days, and that seemed to go on into weeks, which seemed to go on into months. Um, I had two very small children, so I was tethered by that, and we became this really close little unit. And so I had, you know, I was being a mother to them. So that was what I did. And, and my way of dealing with it at the time was um, just to hunker down with them, to, to make life very small just while I was dealing with this and not even think beyond the the four walls and just make each day just about very practical little things about um, the glory of the evening light each evening, what, what, what we might have for tea, you know, which fairy tale, which story we might read at bedtime. And I just made it very little and very little and then gradually expanded it to, to a bigger day until finally, um, you know, I moved out and then realized that actually one really good way of dealing it, with it was to, um, to reach out and, and find, again, that thing that's bigger than myself. To, so reach out into the community. And I was, you know, that it tied in with um, the serious challenge. So boy, did I get thrown into a, a big, big community projects. And that really became my life's work. You know, I absolutely seized on that. And that was such a good coping mechanism for me it was just something so practical like I could do and I met hundreds and hundreds thousands of volunteers people going through the most terrible things um, and it was just so fantastic to be part of this huge volunteering team um, and I haven't that is what I do that is how I I lead my life really back to Piglet mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not being frightened because you're being useful. And provided you with an opportunity, as you've also said, to look outwards. Yeah, yeah. What advice would you give someone who was going through that, Annika? I think know that you're loved and, you know, reach out to people who love you and would love to help, perhaps. Um, I mean, everyone's circumstances are so different. Again, it just feels sort of wrong to try and offer up any kind of advice because people will just be getting through it in the, in the way that they can. But, um, you know, t- talking to friends of mine who are going through really very sad times at the moment, 
what does seem to have helped is that circuit breaking thing of, of taking themselves out of their situation into something else, whether it's cooking or painting or going for a walk or making a phone call um, or being practical. Um, but I, I feel they're very small crumbs of comfort. Um, what, what would you suggest, Jason? It's really helpful. I think, I think along the lines of what you've said, um, you know, is, is looking after the, the physical as well as the psychological. And so, um, you know, things like eating regularly and, as you say, getting out for a walk or making ensure you're kind of exercising reaching out to people if there are people around you if there's no one around you to reach out to talk to ask for support and help from then there are masses of organizations out there as yes. well i think you you know we can we can also um people can can access i think that's key I had no idea all this help was available. You know, when my parents both had Alzheimer's, I had no idea there was an Alzheimer's organization at that time. It was sort of before we were all much more uh, talkative about all these issues. You know, we've, we, we're now talking about all sorts of things, aren't we, in a way, a couple of decades before no one really did. Um, oh my goodness, and Marie Curie, oh my goodness, the, the help and support they can offer for you you know there's organizations listening charities that will be so happy just to listen in a gentle and kind way um so yes definitely reach out i think you'll be amazed at the glorious people out there like yourself jason who are just there to help it's only a four-letter word help but it's just it's there and uh, i think you're absolutely right organizations uh, pick up the phone and, and talk to someone if you can mm. just to finish um what's it meant to you today to come on the Marie Curie couch well I as I said I I'm a great supporter of Marie Curie so I just feel really chuffed to have been asked and um I I'm very aware that most of my chat will be very trivial compared to the problems most people are facing but you know if there's one sort of small bit of advice that along the way or or experience that someone it chimes with someone um you know it's it's just good to talk isn't it it's just good to talk Annika Rice, thank you for joining me on the Marie Curie couch today and thank you for sharing your stories it's been great to meet you thank you Jason so that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 or search Marie Curie online. The podcast's produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision and the music featured is Time Lapse by Panoceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening and until next time, Goodbye.